from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studio, looking out onto the famed Locust Walk on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania. Muggy, warm, still, close August morning here in Pennsylvania. Good morning, Shane Jensen. How are you? Good morning. I'm very excited. I'm very excited for this show where we pretend like there's only one sport. <laughs> no in pretending. In the wide no world pretending. of sports. We're just starting at the top of the list. We are not focusing going, on the going... number one sport. That's, That's right. right. That's right. That is Shane Jensen. He's co-hosting with me, Cade Massey, this morning. Our two collaborators, Eric Bradlow and Audie Weiner, are out doing Eric and Audie things. They will be back. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. I mean, like 48, 49 weeks a year, some obscene thing, some combination of us. Two, toiling three, the uh, minds yeah, for your right. entertainment. This is serious toiling. You can join the conversation. You want to toil with us, please do give us a shout. It's one eight four four wharton one 942 And by the way, this morning we're going to be talking, I believe... Two straight hours about football. So if you have football questions, observations, predictions, we love predictions. If you have anything to say about football, cue it up, get ready, give us a shout. Our producer, still rookie producer. How long is he going to be a rookie producer? Matt Dodds. Oh. Like a I year? Mean, no, Does he have I a mean, year? He's going no. from Padawan to Jedi very quickly. You I think, think so? so yeah. All right. So we'll see. The hot and heavy activity around Football is going to like really christen him. I yeah, think. that's right. That's right. We'll and see. I mean, feel free to call in with other questions. We'll just turn them into football questions. <laughs> yeah, that's We're good, good that way. Good creative exercise. You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Easy email address, especially if you're listing one of the four or five times we're replayed between now and next week. If it's not 8 to 10 Eastern, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, you're listening to a replay, you can still reach out. We pick up those emails during the week. We also sometimes pick them up during the show. You guys want to drop us a, a note real time via email, that'd be fine. That'd be just fine. The idea this morning, because, you know, Audie's not here to, to, to force us to do otherwise, is to talk football for most of, Audie may come in, by the way, to talk football for for pretty much the entire show. We've got We've got two great guests lined up for the, for the show, we've got guests that, who've been here before, two real experts in their respective domains, pro football in the bottom of this hour, and then college football at the top of the next hour. In the first half hour, the first quarter of the show, we're just open lines, open topic, find out what's on Shane Jensen's mind. Probably going to think mostly about NFL. Hey, real quickly, do we want to nod to the rest of the world? Is there anything, what's most notable as you fall off the cliff from the top two most important sports to the right. rest of the world? What do you see right now? I mean, people should be watching baseball. There's a couple, like, interesting races happening. Yeah, um, this is true. You know, there's some pretty unprecedented stuff with the Dodgers and Astros happening in baseball. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm still excited about that. I but. saw Giancarlo Stanton. Did I have that correct? Yeah. He has more home runs in a 35-game stretch than anybody since the peak steroid era. I mean, he's in a yeah. short list, like 23 home no, runs. He's, 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 he's on those that kind of Barry Bonds pace that you don't... Seriously. We didn't Ma think we'd see Ma before. Maguire, Sosa, and yeah. Bonds are the only guys who are in that territory for 23, yeah. 24 home runs out of 35 games. 
What's going on with that? Well, I mean, I think it's, I mean, he's obviously one of the better people at hitting home runs in the league. I think it's just kind of like a manifestation of just how many home runs are just being hit across baseball. I mean, there really is sort of like what we've been seeing this season is, you know, I mean, you've got, (laughs) you've got shortstops and second basemen hitting like 20, 30 home runs. It's kind of a ridiculous time in baseball. And, and, And what's your, what's your parsimonious explanation for that? Way better steroids. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I think. Um, I mean, I mean, I think it's a lot of. Um, I think it's a real shift, uh, just kind of in like you know terms of. Uh, I mean, I think I think it's hitter, hitters adapting to new technology, and then the new technology over the last decade or so that's really affected them is how good we've got. Uh, teams have gotten about defensive shifting, taking taking out balls in play. And so I think that to the extent that you, you know, there's been a lot, I think a lot more energy put into, you know, ways in which you can get the ball out of the park. And I, I think, you know, like things like, you know, batting plane, like, you know, a lot of adjustments for batting plane and stuff like that to Interesting. kind of give so we, these people more power. Right. We've got a lot of technology giving us more details on process, but you're also naming kind of the game theoretic, the ongoing game theoretic mm-hmm. that always goes back and forth between offense and defense. In any competitive endeavor, but especially sports, so you're saying as offense, I mean, as defense has started using this defensive shift yep. from analysts, by the way, and taking away, at least re- reducing the chances of uh, success on the ground. That's right. They've shifted, the, the, the batters have shifted to a, a more home run strategy. Interesting. All right, fine. That was baseball. Anything, we paid it lift service. That was no, good. That more, was good. We got that a little was analysis good. That out of it. That's good. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think I learned something. Um Shane, what else? I think the PGA, I mean, the fourth and final major was played this past weekend. That is true. Justin Thomas won. You know, it's this thing where young guys win, unknowns win, and and you feel kind of bad for them because nothing against them. They're perfectly decent people. Three years from now, we might love them. It's just a ridiculous thing that happens with familiarity. Yeah. I mean, the more familiar you are, you tend to like things better. Yeah. You process I mean, them I more I, fluently. I, I, I mean, my heart doesn't exactly go out to him. I think he's probably pretty happy about the whole thing. But, but I agree, it's, it doesn't have that sort of like... Baseball's in kind of an interesting phase right now as far as fandom goes, right? Because I think it's sort of, you've got... It's it's very wide open, and I think that's exciting in and of itself because um, I like watching golf. But I think people tend to want to coalesce, I think, around sort of, you know, thing like the Tiger. Yeah, that we was we need to, a Tiger that Woods. That was supposed to be Rory, need... Rory versus Jordan down right. in North Carolina. Right, that was right. what that was supposed that's to be. That's right. So it, it wasn't quite that. So Jordan Spieth's got his act together, start winning like every fourth major. Yeah, it's just And, it's just and lame, I mean, right? just do that. <clears throat> so Justin Thomas is the name of the winner. It turns out he's a he's a longtime competitor of Jordan Spieth. They've been playing golf against each other for, you know, I don't know, decades or so. A decade. They're young. They've been playing since they were, they were um, you know, teens. But Justin Thomas is number six in the world right now. But going into the tournament, he was 14. I mean, it's just a, you know, there's so mm-hmm. many good golfers yeah. out there, and we only we only have attention span for like six of them. Yeah, no, we 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 need Rufus Peabody back on the show to tell us about like you know the 80th best golfer in the world because people are tracking this. Just it's hard for the casual fan yeah. to track. Interesting anything thing, but a top ten. Interesting thing I heard while listening to watching a little bit of the tournament. They're going to move the PGA. I think this is right. They're going to move the PGA. It's always been the fourth chronologically. Yeah. coming around in August, they're going to move it to like May. What? Late May. 
it's going to become the second. It's going to be between. I could be making that up. Callers, let oh, us know. Man. Matt, let me know if I'm wrong. We're going to get some intel. I feel like I, I like it. I mean, you know, I no, I, I, I feel like just, there's there's enough. To, there's already enough of a. I, I like the gap between the Masters and the U.S. Open. I mean, the Masters is a little. What do you like about that gap, Shane? Well, why I do mean, you care. I don't know. It just spreads it out a little bit more. I mean, why would you try and pack Cram your tournaments in, in so? Well, there's a pretty good gap there because the U.S. Yeah. Open is mid-June and right. the Masters is early April. I mean, maybe they're recognizing what everybody's recognizing is around like early August. Uh, people like us start focusing entirely on football, and 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 so you and know, baseball's heating up, yeah. I guess. And they, they uh, so yeah, Matt, our producer, confirms May 2019. We've got one more year of August PGA, and they're going to shift things up on us. All right. Right. Be interesting to see whether that changes its prestige in, at all, and it may introduce a different rotation of courses. You know, maybe I think they're. I mean, maybe, I mean, dude, is is it the fact that they kind of avoid a lot of the sort of like farther southern courses because August because of the heat? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. May would open that up a little bit more. Could be. Could be. I think they're going to open the first one, May 2019, at Bethpage Black, with this famous municipal course up on Long Island. Okay. And um. Famously long, famously challenging. This is a course where guys like sleep in their cars, and guys and women, I'm sure, both sleep in their cars overnight. They queue up to, to get on. Really? I think they played a U.S. Open back there at the peak of uh, Tiger Woods' dominance of the game. It was a kind of a big deal to roll a municipal course into the rotation. Okay, so we've got another sport, another non-football sport. Gave a little homage, a little homage to professional golf. Anything? I don't think anything else demands our attention no. right now. No. Right. Let's just dive in, man. All right. NFL. We're going to talk NFL. Shane, as you think about the upcoming season, other than, I mean, you've got to change, man. You've got to shift gears. You've got yeah. to move on. Have I, have, am I too Patriots focused? It's is not it, just it the Patriots focused. It's certainly become tiresome in the kind of friends and family category. I thought you guys. Well, the thing is, I, I, have seen, I have it. seen you so little this summer that it hasn't become tiresome. In fact, yeah. I still am entertained by the little twinkle in your eye when you talk about the 2016 Pats. But Shane, you got to move on. Okay. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm 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 ready to entertain uh, the notion that there's 31 other teams, um, and maybe a subset of those are competitive with the Patriots. Well, um, speak- I mean, I mean. Convince me. Well, I'm going to start out by yeah. by by actually going to Patriots country, because did you see this crazy thing that Aaron Schatz, Aaron Schatz, the founder of Football Outsiders, possibly the preeminent football analyst, certainly the professional football analyst that people most think of, mm-hmm. and, he, and, yeah. he, and he gets credit for being one of the first to really get sophisticated. Aaron Schatz was on Seth Meyers late night with Seth Meyers last week. I mean. What world do we live in? Aaron's yeah. great. Aaron's great, no, and, I thought right. he, and I thought he did a great job. It's just shocking. It is. Seth Meyers had Aaron shots on late night TV. That's yeah, wonderful. That's, no, it, it, and I mean, I guess that 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 gives us all hope. You know? <laughs> in some Am way, I, yeah. He's just he's you and just, I are going to be on Fallon next week or something <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah. yeah. Just wait for that. Just sit at home, and wait for that phone call, Shane, because that that's going to happen any minute now. But what did what did he have to say? I didn't actually see this. Well, it's only about a six-minute bit. Uh, we tweeted it out of our Wharton Moneyball uh, Twitter account, which is at W Moneyball. You want to follow us on Twitter, it's at W Moneyball. And uh, basically, you know, Seth's asking, where did this come from? How would you get started? What do you do? Do people listen to you? Right. That kind of thing. And Aaron was great. I mean, you know, he, he totally comes off as one of the nerdy quants that mm-hmm. everyone thinks we are because mostly that's true. 
but Aaron's a great talker and entertaining and he and he um and he came off just fine and it was glorious to see an analyst a quant <laughs> on late night TV yeah, no. so turns out Seth Meyers is like a big football fan he's a big Boston sports fan and so it kind of fits yeah yeah and if you're gonna reach out and grab someone from that community like legit from that community and you can't get Bill James right I think I think uh, Aaron's a reasonable way to go good fun crazy yeah but you know, I would love to talk to Paul D Podesta and what's going on in Cleveland, well, for example, Paul, right? But Paul, something Paul's like suave, you know. He's like a good-looking guy. He was a jock in college, and so he's got that nerd reputation. But Paul is not Aaron Shaw. I got so, you. I got you. Just in terms he's a, he's of he's Paul's like a bridge between the jocks and the nerds. Yeah, whereas that's Aaron's right. full on. Yeah, that's right. Aaron's that's more right. God love Aaron. Aaron's, I love, Aaron's our people. Is I, I love, guess what you're saying. Hey man, yeah. we can claim Paul too. But uh, but the rest of the world would think we're Aaron yeah. Shots. And yeah. but D Podesta's ridiculously sharp guy. Yeah. So you said you want to talk to him about what's going well, on with yeah, the Browns? Yeah, because, you know, I, I think, you know, the Browns are taking sort of like almost, you know, at least to the casual observer, appear to be kind of taking almost like a a process, you know, like strategy in, in Cleveland, you know, building for the future, accumulating a lot of draft picks, spending them, try, tr- essentially trading current talent to the extent that they still have any for future prospects. <laughs> um you know, and I mean that that we've talked a lot about, you know, kind of what what bad teams can do to improve, and and whether you want to sort of take a low risk, sort of low return strategy of just like you know trying to basically sign enough guys to be mediocre for the upcoming NFL season, or do you take the kind of more high risk, high return strategy where the, you know the the kind of ba- process in basketball represented to me, where you really accumulate a lot of future prospects, you know, hoping that a subset of those cash in, and are planning like three or four years out as opposed to for the next season. Yeah, because it's hard it's hard sort of politically to plan three or four years out in the NFL because fans aren't typically that patient, uh, fans and owners. You're saying that they may be less patient than college teams or than basketball teams? What's no, no, no. I, no, I mean, I, I think they'd be just as impatient as basketball teams, which is why the process was not really kind of... I mean, we saw in, in, in basketball specifically that the process, though supported by ownership early on, I mean, it, you know, people got impatient with that too. Yeah. So, I, I mean, my, my, my sense is that the single scarcest commodity in professional sports is patience. Yeah. And 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 uh, and the reason that's important is that that is uh, an advantage available to teams. That's the, they're looking for edges. Everyone's looking for an edge, right? Yeah. And they're trying different things for an edge. The biggest edge is patience. And it's really it, the reason it's an edge is because it's really hard to pull off. You have to have an owner who's willing to withstand pressures from kind of all sides. He's got to stand up to coaches who need, you know, their guy now in order to win. He's got to stand up to fans. He's got to stand up to media. Yeah. I mean, there aren't, frankly, there aren't that many owners who are willing to put up with that, who have the, who believe enough in the process and are willing to put up with that. Those are two different things. Mm-hmm. And that, but again, that means that those teams who are have an advantage. There is an advantage there. And, and we're going to see the Sixers build, continue to build, we all think, for the next couple mm-hmm. of years on the back of decisions that Sam Hinkie and the owners of the Sixers made when Sam was there. Yeah. And, they kind of ran out of patience, but they, they rode that train long enough to build up this advantage. Yeah. They, they built up an edge that's going to be paying off, we believe, 
it, you know, it may not result in a championship, but it's going to get them into that echelon. Right. And I mean, so what teams do we kind of see in football that are kind of like in this genre of, of where, where they're bad now? Super but long it, term. But they're bad now, but you kind of get the impression that they actually are building towards something successful. Right. You know, because I mean, obviously the Jets are getting a lot of attention now because the Jets are looking very bad looking going into the season, right? They, <laughs> a, they just look bad. They look a, really bad. They do not have... It's a necessary condition for they do answering not your have, question. Well, it's well, not a sufficient condition well, right. being bad. Well, that yeah. So, I mean, let's, let's focus on them for a second. They are a team that does not look like they have what would we be, be regarded as the starters on most teams at very many of their positions. Yeah. yeah. You know, and so is that part of a plan or are they just bad <laughs> right now and and there really isn't that kind of vision for the future right because people are talking about maybe the jets are tanking or maybe they really yeah. are taking this path the jets have never been lauded for the quality of their ownership or management and so this would be a turn yep so it's a reason to be skeptical but you know truthfully we don't have obviously we don't have visibility into the quality of all these front offices but the nfl kind of famously has spotty you know quality mm -hmm. in front and ownership in particular i mean this is something that i think was most eye-opening to me as i first started getting involved in the league and whatever it was 10 or 12 years ago how how highly varying the quality of ownership yeah. is and it's not only highly varying i would say it's probably relatively low mean meaning you know there, there just isn't that much sophistication especially compared to say the nba Right. We've just seen a lot of new ownership come in, more sophisticated ownership, so people that's, coming in from the, finance. I mean, it's probably the most extreme example of, like, I guess, a, a league that in its entirety I would view as the most progressive, right? Yeah. It, it does seem like there's more of an ethos in the in basketball now towards, for sure, you know, adva essentially advancement, accepting new technologies, etc. I mean, I mean, I just look at like hockey versus basketball. Um, hockey is back with where football is. You know, they're, yeah. they're, it, it just seems like you know somehow. Through ownership and front offices, there's still this kind of very traditionalist viewpoint. Yeah, and there's and that goes down to the kind of the culture in yeah. the sport. Both those sports are known, and you talk to guys in hockey who talk about how how slow it is to change that culture. Um, some front offices that are known as being more progressive, you know, in terms of analytics and the and process and mm -hmm. taking that long road, the Pats obviously, and they've got a, a coach who has the backing of the owner and the skins on the wall to uh, you know stand up to the the backlash yeah. if he goes for it on fourth backlash, and whatever yeah. <laughs> in, on his own 20 um he's built up enough uh you think he's built up uh, yeah he's got some credit that, that, that Belichick's not gonna get fired over a fourth down decision probably not um the eagles our local guys yeah. the eagles are known as they a savvy analytics happy on the list of, of, yeah. of teams that sort of you know well the owner the owner they've got a sophisticated owner they've got a sophisticated gm they've got some stability those guys have been together for a while now and uh they've had they've been in the analytics game for a long time mm -hmm. they've been in the sports science game they're one of the first to bring in the sports science game you'd put them on that list um then you kind of start just looking for stable you know, stable ownership, mm -hmm. uh, and and by that I mean st stable front office ownership that believes in stability. So Steelers have are high, highly regarded. Steelers are obviously the poster child for that. I mean, they, what are they, they they've had I think three head coaches since the 1970s. Incredible. It's something incredible like that. Yeah. I mean, you don't want stability if it's bad or weak, and there may be a few examples out there. But at, if if you're performing at the level of Pittsburgh and you have a down year, you don't want an ownership that's going to overreact mm -hmm. to that. And they've managed to kind of 
persist through some troughs over the over the decades. Another organization, same division that 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 seems to have some of the same traits is the Ravens. Mm-hmm. They've had a, you know almost twenty years together now of of largely the same group, and again at a pretty high level of performance. And that means that when they have these dips, kind of inevitable dips, they don't overreact. They persist through it, and then they come out the other side. So let's just why don't we look at the why don't we look at some preseason expectations real quick? This is Cade Massey this morning with Shane Jensen. Uh, we're 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 going to be here for the next hour and a half talking football. This is Wharton Moneyball. Of course, you can jump in here if you'd like. Give us a shout. One eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Talking NFL in this first in this first quarter. Shane, I've got I've got the FPI rankings. This mm-hmm. is ESPN's FPI rankings. Probably as good as you can get out there, publicly available. Um, that they, they, they are, they are, they, they do a lot of things that most power rankings don't. They usually, com, you know, barely consistent with the Massey Peabody stuff. We don't have our stuff, our preseason NFL ready. We'll talk about our college later in the season, later in the show. But the FPI, let's just walk down the list real quick. Pat's not only number one. But number one, they kind of lap the field. They yeah, are they are almost looking pretty impressive. More four and a half points. Yeah. Uh, they, so the the power rankings are scaled such that the number says how many points they'd be favored against an average team on a neutral field. And the Pats come in preseason at plus nine, which is a high preseason number. Usually the preseason numbers aren't quite that quite that out there. Number two, Packers. Fine, good, everything, but that's four and a half points, four point four points less mm-hmm. than the Pats. So Pats, if Packers go to New England, just say they went to New England early right now, they'd get the you know, Pats are going to get another two and a half points. Pats would be a seven point favorite over the number two team in the league. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and I mean, I think it's. I mean, again, I I like I like seeing that, but um, I have to say it is all. It's a unique thing that you take. Basically, you know, by by outcome, the number one team in the league in the previous year, and then by most pundits' estimations, they're also that same team that was already number one kind of wins the off season in terms of improvement as right. well. Right. You don't usually see the number one team also come across as the most improved team. Now, how much of that is because they make smart choices versus they have an advantage in the free agent market? I, th- I think it, I think it's, I think it's the second. I mean, I do think they obviously are a, a, an organization that makes smart cho- historically makes more smart choices than most organizations. So I think there's a p- perception bias that we look at sort of some of the kind of like questionable moves they make and just sort of assume that they know what they're doing as opposed to most f- football franchises where we don't make that assumption. <laughs> right. You know, like the Jets taking a chance on a particular player that's sort of, you know, like maybe under the radar. We're all like, oh, that was probably just a weird signing. Whereas, you know, we, we just inf- assume there's some Belichick like magic going on there if right. the Pats do it. So right. there's that. But I, th- I do think also it, they are they have an easier the Pats have an easier time of it because every player, you, you know, yeah. they're able to get players want to stay. If you're there, you want to stay. If, if you're, you're there, not you there, you want to get there. Yeah, I mean, Donta Hightower had a, a purportedly offer, higher offers from other teams and decided to stay. And it's rare that that happens, right? Uh, you know, but it turns out like after a certain money level, players really do want to go to a place where they feel like, A, that they, you know, that the team is going to be successful in outcome, but also that they, you know, will be given a really 
a, a role where they can su- succeed, I guess. They're not going to be thrown into chaos. Well, and, and just the people, they, they treat them well. They, the yeah. teams do compete on these other dimensions, and the Pats are up top, but other teams have advantages as well. But the Pats, are not, they're, they're even changing the ball field in, the, in this on this on this on this particular competition they've now they've got their own jets yeah no this i mean is that, something we that, talked about last they seem week. to just be operating own... on a different level than the rest of the nfl it's kind of crazy but, but um but i'm a little intrigued to, like kind of about you know the packers coming in second in in, in these the espn uh, rankings because there is have some you lost move... have you lost faith in aaron Rodgers? no no i've i've lost complete faith in them uh, giving him an adequate defense okay. to kind of accompany him. I mean, the the problem in Green Bay over the last few years has not been Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers has single-handedly like carried them through several playoff games where he's basically had to outscore other teams. Mm-hmm. It's that, you know, it's that defense. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of defense, we got Steelers rolling in at number three mm-hmm. and also aging quarterbacks, and he's aging faster yeah. than Rodgers is. Do, how, how, do you think Roethlisberger can still can still deliver at the level that he did there for so many years. I think for the next couple of years where he's still got a Antonio Brown and Martavis Bryant to throw to, yeah. No, mm-hmm. I think so. I think the Steelers will still be one of the you know best teams in the AFC. I'm doing this thing that I hate when other people do, which is being completely quarterback-centric yeah. and giving too much credit and blame to the quarterbacks for the quality of the team. And you're doing exactly the right thing, which is even with Rodgers. I mean, so with Roethlisberger, you're saying consider the receivers. Yeah. And I, and I think advantage. defense is an and issue defense, in Pittsburgh yeah. as well. We, okay. So, so, and this is why, you know, something like you can kind of, I think a lot of people, I, I think the Seahawks are kind of lurking a little bit down, like, like ESPN, at four or five ESPN on has them at, at four. Yep. And, and I so, think and that's... Right, and right there in the mix. I mean, these teams are, these, you know, two through, I don't know, seven. Yeah, are kind of tightly grouped within about a point of each other. So I, I, I think I think if if you kind of feel like quarterback is like overemphasized in a lot of people's just sort of psychological rankings, the Seahawks are a bit of a counter to that because I mean Russell Wilson's great and all, but they're not a team that's known really for their offense. Mm-hmm. You know, and in fact, most of their kind of concerns I think coming into this season are, are the same as the last few seasons. Is have they kind of like given. Russell Wilson enough protection? Do they actually have a running game that's going to support him? Mm-hmm. Whereas there's not as much question about the defense there. Mm-hmm. Though that defense is different than it was, you know, three years ago when it was unreal. It's well, still what, a very that, good that defense. That tends to be what happens when you have such outstanding performance that teams poach yep. guys as they come up for their second contract mm-hmm. or third contract. Mm-hmm. It's tough to keep the band together. It is. And, but that, Seattle's, for example, done a pretty good job of keeping that band together. I mean, you know, though there has been talk that, you know, Sherman's still there, Bennett's still there. Yeah, it's amazing that Sherman's yeah. still there. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a team that puts a real premium on the culture of the place. Mm-hmm. And they probably have an advantage. I mean, they've won, so so they've got that advantage going in terms of keeping players. But also they emphasize so much player development and culture they, yeah. they they people tend to think that they're about as good at that as anybody in the league and it's because carol believes that's where one of the real advantages come from yeah he is much he's much less optimistic about analytics he's much bigger on culture and player development uh small story out of the seahawks tyrone swoops texas quarterback you know kind of loved and hated mostly not loved at university of texas big guy uh, never really had a chance he got thrown to the wolves early big guy he switched. He never played tight end in his life. He switched to tight oh, end. Interesting. He went in as an undrafted free agent and is, apparently is having a good camp. Unless he got cut in the last week and I don't know about it. He has apparently had a good camp. Even some tweets from some of the players about him. 
So it's kind of fun to watch this little story, uh, kind of a feel-good story if it works out for Tyrone Sweet. Yeah, that's a, I mean, it's it's not unprecedented, right, that a position shift like that you can still translate into the big league, so that's to speak. Right. But you know, it's not. It's not common. It's not common. It's not common, and you, it, it's it's weird to think about a QB playing. You know, there was a big guy. Who was that guy? Guy out of Arkansas. I'm making it up. The guys, some guys have tried that before. Well, Edelman you know, Edelman played quarterback in college right? like d3 or something yeah like, no i know it wasn't like you know prominent quarterbacking but he was a quarterback and you know college. it goes you know the, one of the most interesting stories it goes the other way who's the the qb for the dolphins for the last few years Tannehill. yeah Tannehill was a receiver he i think he might have played quarterback as high school played a little quarterback at a&m played receiver most of his career at a&m and then went back to quarterback for the NFL is just amazing. That that story is amazing. Yeah, I mean that sort of says that like obviously there's something that scouting scouting contributes beyond just like on paper. I mean for them to be able to, to pick something that. like that out is yeah. amazing to me. Be and, like, hey, this guy, mediocre wide receiver, but he could actually be a quarterback. <laughs> I mean, how do you see something like that? Um, what do you think about the Cowboys losing Elliott for six games? How how much is that going to affect them? Um, they oh, they, they come in gonna... at six, by the way. NFL's FP, ESPN's FPI ratings, the Cowboys come in at six. I think it's probably going to make a difference of like a game or so, maybe in their like kind of like expectations, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, because they do have a few. I was kind of looking at their early season schedule. It's not the worst thing, and it's not they're not going up against the toughest teams. But I think they have the Giants, for example, mm-hmm. in that first six, and I think they would really like to have Elliott for that. I mean, they've got a couple games in their first six where I think the presence-slash-absence well, of I mean, Elliott how, makes a difference. How much? It's not an average running back they lost. They lost one of the top yeah. two or three running backs in the league. How much does losing a top two or three running back affect, say, the point spread? Yeah. It's really a question. I mean, it's a really hard question. This is what makes these types of things hard in football. Um, the because... average running back goes I can tell you, Shane, the average running back goes down. It doesn't affect the the expected points out of a team. Yeah. The average running back. It's harder to estimate, you yeah. know, a few members on the right tail. And, and that's right. And because, because in part, is he, Elliot, I mean, Elliot seems like he's a real kind of transcendent talent, but like he also, is he partly in that right tail because they've got such a great offensive the, line un, and a really good quarterback. So, you know, and those things are still going to be there. So, yes, I mean, it's, they're not going to be plugging me in at running back to replace him. They're going to be plugging in, obviously not a talent like Elliott's, but yeah, that that, that downgrade running back, is that going to be so substantial that the line slash quarterback are not going to be able to compensate I'm going to say no. I'm going to, say, I'm going to short the Ezekiel Elliott, uh, you know, the, 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 the weeping and gnashing of teeth that yeah. we hear from Dallas and say, great line, overestimate the impact of injuries, even a transcendent talent may cost them, you know, I don't think it's going to cost them a point a game. Interesting. Okay. May, you know, maybe a point a game. Two other teams I want to hear your reactions to before we go to break. One is the Raiders. I love having the Raiders in the, this high up. Of the, I think mm-hmm. it's good for the NFL when the Raiders yeah. look this good. The ESPN rankings have them seventh and really right in the mix with the Falcons and Cowboys. So right in there, five, six, seven, the LA Raiders. I mean, the Oakland Raiders. <laughs> the <laughs> so Las Vegas LA Raiders. Teams. The Las Vegas Raiders. God, it's really tough to keep straight. Uh, any 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 thoughts on the Raiders? Oh, I think I mean honestly, I mean I guess since you remind me about the Steelers, I might have to change this, but um, I kind of feel like Oakland's probably going to be the one of the team. I mean, obviously New England, I think is going to be in contention in the play. I, I think it's going to be between Oakland, Pittsburgh, and New England. Uh, for, let's, let's just get rid of Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. I don't need any more Pittsburgh, but 
Oakland. Yeah. Oakland, no, that's, New England, that could that's be fun. really exciting. And I, that's I, I, fun. They've got a great defense. Um, uh, it would be it, it's, it would be we were robbed of the opportunity to see uh, Derek Carr in the playoffs last yeah. year. Yeah. And I would really like to see that because I. He, he seems like he's kind of emerging as one of these top quarterbacks in the league. And, you know, we just want to make sure that he is, yeah, you know, up there, know. Up there with right. the Roethlisbergers and the Bradys right. and not in the kind of like Andy Dalton mix. Right. Shane, am I am I wrong? When I think of the Raiders, the image that comes to mind is like a is like a late game on a Sunday. They're playing on a field and they're playing on like a half baseball field. Yeah. And there's like dirt. And yeah. Am I yeah. wrong to yeah, have that image? In, insane fans looking there. Oh, I, I hope they preserve that when they move yeah, how to they, Vegas. Yeah, they should, play, they, should, they should bake in a baseball field just to preserve the image. All right. We're going to stop there, but we've got three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. back welcome back to Wharton Moneyball two hours of sports analytics we do this every Wednesday morning 8 to 10 Eastern this morning it's Shane and Cade you can jump in here and join us if you'd like 1-844-WHARTON 1-844-942-7866 you can also follow us on Twitter at WMoneyBall at WMoneyBall and uh, we're this morning talking football Pretty much two hours of football. It's that time of year. Got to indulge it a little bit. College season kicking off two and a half weeks from now. Pro the week after that. In fact, college is going to kick off before that. This is, that's the main weekend, but they're going to do some early stuff. Exciting. Each year that comes by, there's like they're trickling up a, a few more games a little earlier. Um, so we're, we're it's happening. This thing is actually going to happen. We're almost through the long off season. To help us understand what we're walking into we're going to continue the NFL conversation with one of our favorite football watchers and analysts, Chase Stewart. Chase, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. Good morning. How are you guys doing today? Doing great, Chase. Doing great. Glad to have you. Chase is the owner of footballperspective.com. You can see he, he, he writes great little pieces there and some longer pieces there on a regular basis. He's written pieces for 538, Pro Football Reference, New York Times, Football Guy, Smart Football. He's, he's all over the place. He's one of the best guys out there bringing analytics to football, especially the NFL. You can also follow Chase on Twitter, at FBG Chase. Chase is C-H-A-S-E, at F-B-G-C-H-A-S-E. Chase, where are you calling in from this morning? Now, I feel like I need to have you follow me around all the time. This is great. <laughs> I can do that. <laughs> I'm available for hire. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm calling from the, the peaceful streets of Times Square in New York City this morning. Oh, my goodness gracious. What are you doing in Times Square? Does, do you have uh, a... Just, just enjoying life. This is uh, unfortunately pretty close to where I live, so that's that's the beauty of being a Manhattan guy. All right, that that, that and you choose Times Square to, to do that. You're gonna break, you're gonna spend your Wednesday morning in Times Square. <laughs> I guess <laughs> it's good. Do it. Yeah, good energy. That's great. Um, Chase, we're we have some questions we want to ask you, but just you've been on the show at least once, probably more than that. I think more than once. And can you just remind our listeners where you're coming from, like how you got involved? in this business and what your background is. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, the, I'll give the short version. I don't want to put your readers or listeners to sleep this early in the morning, but I've always been a big football fan, always interested in the statistical part of the game. I was a big fantasy football player back in the day, and in 2002, I started doing freelance fantasy football writing at footballguys.com. I was really lucky to have some great mentors along the way, and just the longer you do this stuff, people notice you, and eventually you get some promotions, and it, it kind of 
falls uh, into place there. There's a snowball effect, and you get more exposure, and then the New York Times helped get me a lot of exposure. And so I've always had an analytics-inclined mind about these things. I've been doing it for a long time, and you know, that from my perspective, it's fun to watch the NFL. It's it's just as fun to debate the NFL and to think about the NFL. And to you know, I like writing. It makes me challenge my thoughts and learn new things every day. So yep. I think if you bring a passion to it, you uh, people will find that and they'll they'll see that in your writing. Yeah, you 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 had this commitment a year or two ago to write every day. I think you write something every day for a year. You brought in a few guest writers, but you did a lot of writing yourself. Do you think? You you learn much by putting. Do you think how much do you learn by articulating and getting feedback from the world? That's one of the things that you're constantly doing is you're interacting with the world. You're getting responses to these things on a daily basis. How has that affected how you think about football? Well, it, it keeps it in the forefront of your mind, and I, I have still been doing that every day. Some you know since then, and for me, it's just easier, right, to block off a stretch of time every day. That way, I don't have to think about what days am I writing. Mm-hmm. But it, it helps keep the creative juices flowing, and it you know you learn from people. There's so many smart people out there, and reading other articles, reading people react to your stuff. You can write something, and if you get ten responses, that could lead to ten or fifteen new articles, right? And the way right. people think of things will will just make you kind of go down a a wormhole of football knowledge, and, and I love football history, and so to, interacting with people and talking about the NFL just kind of makes me want to do more uh, research and, and analysis, and so that, that's a huge part of it. I think it's, it's important to publish your work. Yep, yep. So you you did a piece here in the last few days that caught our eye. You looked at you looked at game spreads, kind of futures. So sports books come out when it, in the deep dark of the off season, they come out with some future game spreads, point spreads you know, back in April or May or some absurd thing. And you, there were enough of these out there that you were able to infer from the point spreads a power ranking of sorts. Is that is, right, is that the right way to think about it? It is. And actually, the the interesting thing about it, and this is kind of, you know, I'm a, I'm a math geek too, and the, the funny thing about math is you don't even need that many games to do it. Now, fortunately, they, the point spreads were released for 15 games for each team. So you, you've got more than enough. Oh, yeah. But you can, you can actually do it with maybe just two or three games yep. because the, basically the, the way Vegas will view teams, if you're a three points better than – if you're three points better than league average and you're facing a team that's four points below league average at a neutral site, you're probably going to be about a, a seven-point favorite. And there's not too much – Variance. There's a little bit, but not too much. So if you've got, yep. if, you, if there was a, an expansion team that came into the league and all you knew was their point spread in one game against, say, the you know Texans. Well, if you know, if you have a pretty good feel about how good the Texans are, right. all you need is one game of information from a point spread perspective. This doesn't work after the fact, right? Because the, the variance and end result is huge. Sure. But if you know that this expansion team is a ten point underdog against Houston. You don't really need 15 games to, to get a sense of how Vegas views them. One, one or two can be enough. But what I do is I take all the 240 point spreads and you generate ratings that say let's let's sort of work backwards and say if this is the rating in each game, this must be the ratings that Vegas is using to generate these point spreads. Right. And one of the fascinating things is for years Vegas wasn't using a power ranking, and they they probably many still don't. But it's it, you're basically in, in many. You could go a few years ago. You'd have been pulling something out of these data that they weren't actually working from. They were working from it only tacitly. And, and it, it's interesting. You know, one thing I've I've written about lately is there's been so much advancement on both sides. So I, I would say among the fan perspective, and if you want to say people who actually wager on games, and then also on Vegas side, the people right. who make this the lines. But despite all the advancements in technology and analysis and critical thinking. 
The lines haven't changed too much, and accuracy of lines haven't changed too much. I did a study last month that, you know, that there is not – you might think that we're better at predicting games now than we were 40 years ago, but there's really no evidence to support that. Which That's amazing. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing, right? I mean, it just speaks to the randomness of the NFL, and you've got this weird-shaped ball, and people can only get so close with their predictions. We have a phrase for it in academia, irreducible uncertainty. And people don't like to acknowledge and accept irreducible uncertainty. But what you're saying, look, if there has been that much advance in technology, that much more money and attention has gone into this, and over 40 years, over those 40 years, we're not any better, that's irreducible uncertainty. That's yeah, amazing. it doesn't make sense you know, to, to people, but I think that's, that's exactly what it is. And, and, and just to kind of provide further clarification, if you went back, say, like 10 years to the Vegas lines, you know, what what you're basically doing with trying to back out a power ranking from them is that you're sort of assuming that there's internal consistency in the Vegas odds that they kind of generate, that, you know, if the Pats are three-point favorites against these guys and four-point favorites against those guys, you know, that that is essentially represent, you know, that represents a relative ranking that they are consistent applying across all teams. Yeah. And is that is it the case that if you went 10 years ago, they'd be just as consistent then when they presumably weren't actually basing it on some underlying power ranking as now when they are. Interesting. Yeah, you know, and I think the, the other piece of it's more about what actually happens after the game and it's what percentage of games are off by 10 points or off by 3 points or, you know, Vegas is, is getting so much better at it, shouldn't most games be closer to the point spread? But that, that doesn't happen either. Right, right. So the, the, the variance to actual end game outcome is not declining over time, which you might think would happen. Right. So we're talking to Chase Stewart of footballperspective.com. Chase writes daily and has been for years in, in many great places about football. This One of his latest pieces is in pulling power rankings, inferring power rankings from the point spreads that are being offered right now throughout the season. So you get from that, the, the, the reason you might do this is you find out kind of a ranking, 1 to 32 of the NFL teams and their relative their relative strength, and you can then match up any other two teams, even if they're not scheduled to play each other, and say, if the Cowboys play the Packers in the playoffs, we'd expect it to be you know, completely dependent on home field because we see them as being equal right now. So there, you can do interesting things with the data once you've pulled them out of the point spreads. What did you, what did you find? I mean, I'm looking here at the, at the numbers, but were, were they surprising to you? Do, you? do you think anything's especially interesting or, or off? Well, you know, the one thing that's always, I think, hard for people to wrap their head around is there is more compression in the NFL than you think. So even the Patriots, who are pretty clearly the best team in the league by just about every standard, including this one, you know, they're about seven points better than average, and the second best team is four and a half points better than average. That's a pretty big difference. But even still, seven points, it's not like, you know, that's not the stuff that 16-0 seasons are made of. Right. So it's a reminder of how much variance really goes into end-of-season records. One thing I do like looking at this to, to check is the strength of schedule. Yep. And now this excludes the, the final game of the season, but you, you get a sense of which teams, because these are true strength of schedule ratings, right? So these are, let's measure teams' ratings based, the, the opponents' ratings based on how good we actually think they're going to be, not something like last year's record. Yep. So yep. These, this is a great tool for using strength of schedule. And, you know, the, the, the Jaguars are a team that right now, you know, it, it's hard to get a sense of how where that offense is going because of the quarterback, but they've got the easiest schedule in the NFL. They've made a lot of strong additions on defense. They, they, they seem to have a lot of pieces on offense, too, so it kind of makes me think this could be a team that if, if Blake Bortles can 
get things right this year, they have the potential to have a really strong season because not only have they been building for years, but they've got an easy schedule. And that, that's kind of true with a few of the teams in the AFC South. The Chase, in particular, has a pretty easy one. Chase, you've, the units you've used there are on the scale from like, the, you've picked out Jacksonville, they're negative 1.1. How do we interpret that, that for strength of schedule? Negative 1.1. Yeah, so that, that just means their average opponent is 1.1 points below average. Okay. That, that, that's all it means. I would, and that's pretty significant because you've got 16 games and so you've got a few you know games in there that are really uh implying that they, they've they can boost that because they play the browns there's a small edge the Jets. yeah that, that getting four games against those teams is pretty helpful but, you know, but i got two really tough teams. and i, I, mean, I have I to i have to say though the the i've, I've always kind of poo-poo strength of schedule in the nfl but maybe it's only because of my college football perspective where strength of schedule varies you know hugely in the nfl i feel like the biggest thing about the NFL strength of schedule is that midseason, it's widely wildly disparate, and then it evens up towards the end of the year. They're, so they 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 build the saying they're not perfectly even, obviously, but you know, for big picture, they're pretty even. And then people get people get confused because at the halfway point of the season, they're not even. They're very different at the halfway point, but then they balance up over the course of the year. So I'm always kind of poo poo in strength of schedule in the NFL. Would you would you would you push back on that? I would. I think there, there's a few things to parse out there. Right? So one thing I would poo-poo on is, to use a technical term, yeah. is strength of schedule based on last year's reg, you know, record. Yeah, yeah, and that, yeah. that is not a good use of strength of schedule. This, though, is a pretty good one. This is, I think, about as good as it gets. So this is saying, once you figure out how good each team is, here are the ratings. So now you're, you're eliminating a lot of the noise, which is transferring from last year's record to this year's implied rating. Now, you're right. Obviously, you know you get over an eight-game sample. There's more variance in strength of schedule. But in the NFL, there's also the idea that since teams are so compressed, the, the schedule impact does have a big impact. Uh, that's and interesting. If, okay. If you've got, you know, the difference between 9-7 and 7-9 seven, seven, could just be you know, two games nothing. against a slightly easier team. Yeah, nothing. So it's, it's not the biggest thing in the world, but it, it, can, it absolutely will impact tiebreakers and, and teams. You, you know, you, if you look at some teams that over history have made the playoffs that you didn't think were that good, a lot of them rode pretty easy schedules. So it's also something that you, really with the benefit of hindsight, it's, it's hugely important, but you do lose something because predicting it is still difficult. And so, I, I guess I have a specific question just kind of following up on that about the ranking, because you mentioned Jacksonville, and they're, they're like a negative 1.1, I think, in your, in, in your ratings, suggesting that they've got one of the easiest schedules in the league. But then I, I, I guess, tell us tell us a little bit more about um, how you can have within the same division very different strengths of scale. Because I look at the Texans, and they're at like negative point. They, they have like sort of half the amount of Jacksonville, the strengths of schedule. And I know that there are some differences in schedule between divisional opponents, but I, I would feel that division would kind of be a big part of the strengths of schedule, right? Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. But the, so that's a good way. To so, so is it just one or two teams that Jacksonville happens to play that are that much easier than Houston? That's right. But it, you know, so let's say those two teams are close to even, right? Well, now Houston plays the Patriots, and they play the Chiefs. Those are two pretty difficult games, and you could see them losing both of those games. Those are their two games that vary based on their record. Last oh wow! Year. Yeah, that's a bad draw. Jaguars, that is a bad draw. The Jaguars play the Jets. From the AFC East, yeah, not the There All you right, go, well, Shane. You found it. I, I, I feel and, like and you it, just you just explained it right there. And okay. Of the Chiefs they host yep. the Chargers. Yeah. yeah. So right. that could be you know two and zero versus zero and two. 
everything else is consistent. That is a great That is a great microcosm for strength of schedule, that comparison right there. So we're talking to Chase Stewart from footballperspective.com. You can find his writing in many places, but he's putting something up every day. Uh, and he's as good a read as there is out there on football analytics. We've been talking about his little project pulling power rankings from point spreads, which is a, a neat exercise and gives some insight into the NFL. Another one he posted recently is on the the perennial analyst um, issue of how aggressive are teams on fourth down. So this was a piece that went up yesterday. And the the interesting bit here to me is that Chase is finding some progress on this issue where we haven't seen progress in a while. So I've run these numbers over, for I've run these numbers a few times in the past, and at first we saw some we saw teams increase the li- willingness to go for it on fourth down after Romer's paper came out in the early 2000s. There's like a slow incline, and then I don't know what happened, but it turned around and fell back to its long time levels about it. And what what depends on what question you're asking, but. Fourth and one, for example, in kind of neutral situations, about a quarter of the time they'll go for it, long, long-term um, trend. Chase is finding that in the last couple of years they've been trending up. So can you say more about this, Chase? Yeah, and you're right. I looked at a pretty narrow subset of plays because my, my thinking is let's try to make this as situation neutral as possible. So it's relatively close games, ignoring the fourth quarter where there's you know, di- different elements come into play, only looking at fourth and ones between the 40s, so you don't want to – you know, mix up stuff from close to the end of the end zone. And in that narrow territory, I mean, from, you know, you're talking 20 yards from the 40 to the 40, every analytics person would say, in a situation-neutral environment, you always go for it in fourth and one. It's just obvious the math works. Giving up the possession, possession of the football is so critical in the NFL, especially now when teams are so effective on offense, that giving up possession is a big negative, and it's worth going for it every time in fourth and one, unless there's something weird going on in the game. But, you're right. So in that in this narrow subset, it was only 25%, 30% for a long time, and then it did go up a little bit, then it went back down. I think teams are, are slowly realizing that it just makes sense, and it's not because the conversion rates are getting better. The conversion rates are about the same. That's been a pretty steady on fourth and one in this area. It's about 72%, and that's been consistent. I think what it is is, is frankly, the, the let's just – acknowledge what's happening. NFL teams are hiring more people with analytic mindsets, whether people think that's good or bad. It is happening. Ten years ago, almost no NFL team had any person that was dedicated to this. Now most of them do. And I think that this is an area where it's clear. You can, if you're an analytics person and your team trying to convince them something, this is, you know, let's start here, 101, go for it in this situation. I think teams are responding to it. And the more they do it and they see it work, we get positive reinforcement too. So I think I would expect this trend to continue. That that's that's great to hear. And there's also a kind of a there must be a tipping point out there in terms of norms. So much of the resistance to this, I think, is the backlash they face when it doesn't work out. That's because there's conventional wisdom, and people think they're flouting conventional wisdom. So if they flout it and fail, they suffer. But if the norm becomes no, you should do it, yeah. then that downside is is reduced. But the the effect, I mean, look, it's a small sample, and like you said, you went really conservative. But as a result, you have a relatively small sample. But the effect is significant. You, you show that historically, you know, 25 or 30 percent of the time teams are going for it in these situations where, you know, Romer's model is going to say always go. And in the last two years, the average has been like 44. So this is yeah. like a 50 percent increase 
and the willingness to go for it on fourth and one in the middle of the field. When the, and it know. would be interesting to sort of see, I mean, maybe you've broken this down, maybe you haven't, whether this kind of change in percentage is really fueled by a few coaches really changing their strategy or whether it's like across kind of all teams, there's been an uptick. Like how, yeah. how, how kind of how much is it driven by one or two teams versus like kind of a uniform change across the entire culture of football? That, that's a good question. I haven't gone into that level of detail, but that's something, you know, see, this is why you, you write every day because people give you things to think about. <laughs> but but I, I imagine, you know, the, the, the bigger point is that I do think norms are changing and, and coaches no longer think if it's, you know, five minutes left in the second quarter and it's fourth and one at the 48-yard line, they don't think they're going to get killed if they go for it. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think coaches are more willing to – you know, make what is considered conventionally an aggressive decision, but in reality is just a rational decision. And they're saying, you know what, I don't want to punt and then feel like an idiot watching them drive down the field for the next 10 minutes. I think it's time <laughs> to actually put, you know, let's, let's be aggressive. And, and I think you're seeing coaches get positive reinforcement from other coaches, yeah. the media starting to drive it. So it's a slow push and it's taking a while, but I think the negative backlash is decreasing. So, guys, I heard something yesterday that, that made me distraught that's connected to this. I heard a rumor that the New York Times was going to retire the fourth down bot. Oh, that would be very <laughs> sad. How disappointing is that? So the fourth down bot is this thing that, uh, that, that Brian Burke was involved with and Kevin Qualey and those guys built, and now it's a, it's a Twitter phenomenon where it's, it's going to call every fourth down decision in the NFL real time as it happens. And it's programmed Romer-esque. So it's programmed to do kind of the analytically correct thing. And I've thought that this was really good for norm changing, right? And and Qualey's apparently thinking about retiring this thing. Maybe I'm not supposed to name him as the person, but the New York Times is talking about retiring this thing because they're not sure how much difference it makes. And it still apparently requires more maintenance than you might think. No, I, I think that would be sad. And I'm, I'm always a fan of getting information out to the public you know, there, there, there have been a lot of advances that people don't know about because it's behind paywalls, it's behind, you know, teams are buying information, and there are sources out there that just are not, you know, disseminating interesting information to the NFL fans that they would love to know about. Now, this, and that's not exactly what the fourth down about is, exactly. but it's the same principle. Exactly. You want people to be informed, and if you've got this great tool, it should help inform discussion. So I, I, I agree. You want that out there. Well, Chase, we appreciate you. You help inform the discussion. We wish you the best with the work, and thank you for joining us this morning. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. You bet. That was Chase Stewart, footballperspective.com. Lots of great stuff on the web and other sources from him. This has been Wharton Moneyball. We have one half still to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics. We do it live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10. Some combination of us are up here. Cade Massey, Shane Jensen this morning. Faculty here at the Wharton School, our collaborators and faculty colleagues, Eric, colleagues, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner out this morning. But some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You can join the conversation. We'll jump in here with us. Give us a shout. one 844 Wharton. That's one 942 7866. Today, an all football indulgence, all football all the time, two hours of anticipation. We've been talking mostly about NFL. We're going to shift gears now into the 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 richer, the richer higher uh 
part of football that the, the junior football. circuit. No, 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 no. College football. We've got a guest coming up in this half hour that uh, knows a fair bit about college football. We're very glad to welcome back to the show, Stephen Godfrey. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning. I still don't understand why I come on the show, but I really like it. <laughs> we don't. We don't only want to talk to quant nerds, man. We got to talk to cool people sometimes. Otherwise, okay. it's you know just a little bit too much stat geekery around here. That's my business card. I make quants cool. Exactly. You've done a great number on Connolly. I mean, come on. You, you well, might... it's a work in progress. Well, we're all works in progress, Stephen. We're absolutely yeah. all works in progress. So, Stephen what Godfrey, I mean? Stephen, let me give you a little bit of an intro. Stephen is a yeah. writer at SB Nation and does you know all kind of traditional journo things like embed with football teams and write big investigative pieces. But he also co-hosts what, for my money, is probably the single best college football podcast out there. Podcast Ain't Played Nobody, or PAPN. He co-hosted with Bill Connolly, one of the leading football analysts on the college football side. And they've been doing this for, I don't know, a couple years now, and it's just terrific. Can't recommend it highly enough. Podcast Ain't Played Nobody. But you can also find Stephen's work at SB Nation. So is that fair, Stephen? So how much of your life do you feel is this traditional journalist thing versus kind of being an analyst whisperer? Um, I think that the, so we called the show uh, the college football marriage of numbers and words, mainly because what Bill was doing was considered niche for a long, long time, as as you guys definitely understand that that predicament. And then it gets written off by certain coaches or people in in the community or in the readership as is being you know those are numbers. It's not it's not it doesn't matter when you strap on the helmet, right? All right. those cliches. Right. At the same time, what I was noticing, really more in the late 2000s i think we've, we've made a dramatic shift what is, is it on sort of the editorial side we were still operating in a lot of the same cliches and so i wanted to learn from bill i also thought bill's audience needed to be bigger mm-hmm. in terms of taking some of the you know it's, it's daunting some of the jargon that's involved it's you just mm-hmm. just the, the visual presentation when you look at tables and and I appreciate your compliments on the show, but Bill expressed a personal remorse that he was closing this one Excel sheet that he's been working on all season because he <laughs> finishes off season program. Yeah. So I sang Into the Road uh, by Boyce to Men to him yesterday. Uh-huh. He, was, he, he expressed some genuine emotion about closing an Excel sheet. So <laughs> we try and take that and we, we make it a little bit more palatable for the average fan, the average consumer. And yeah. so the best example I can give is I think we're working on Everyone understanding that total yards allowed on defense doesn't matter. That's mm-hmm. just one example, right? Right, right. And because this is not only what quants are telling me, but when I spend time with coaches, especially off the record, and they pick up that stat sheet after the game, they'll say, "Well, okay, we gave up 444, you know, 440 yards total, and it, it doesn't matter. What matters is right. the score. What matters are, you know, points per drive or points in the red zone. Or and right. those are just very simple ways of looking." I mean, these so, days, if you played if you played Baylor back in the day and held them to 440, you won that game. I mean, there's exactly. just it's, it's completely context dependent, and and and, and the yards are just different than they were in the 70s for for the first hundred years of football. Well, and a great example is I, I've I've spoken with the the defensive coordinator for Texas Tech, which is probably the worst job in college football right now. <laughs> um, and and he's he's very um, self aware and witty. But he, you know, he will tell you that if we give up 700 yards, so be it. But if oh we can God. flip two possessions, you know, if we can flip two yeah, possessions in, into turnovers or, or you know, any kind of punt situation, God. we might win the game. You reminded me, was it was it Oklahoma-Texas Tech last year that was like 900 yards each? 
and it was just it was who was going to stop? Am I remembering <laughs> that correctly? I felt almost scarred yeah, by that well, game. Well, there's a yeah, a couple of Big Twelve games that are that are broaching the, the like 2,500 total yard mark. I mean, it's, <laughs> I don't know if we've seen critical mass yet. Right. So, you know, I think one of the real contributions Bill has made and 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 the show through through the work you guys are doing is the S and P is almost common currency now. So his power rankings are called S&P Plus, and you hear people all over the... Now, I'm biased because I'm usually reading, you know, geeky analyst kind of stuff, but not only. And I hear non-geek... I hear the common fan, really, throw around S&P. I even hear them throw around broken down by offense and defense. Like, you know, Oklahoma, well, they're, you know, their defense is stronger, whatever the word might be. But they're, they're relying on... That's sophisticated analytics. That's a that's a but but it's become it's become much more common than you might think, given how sophisticated it is. And I think that's born out of a desire to better understand, and, mm-hmm. and in some terms, in some cases, maybe to re- maybe to rectify, mm-hmm. maybe to come to terms with uh, a bad performance or understand something in perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I don't really credit anything that SB Nation's done to push Bill, and I don't mean that in a negative way. We we've touted Bill from the beginning. What happened was, I, I think, a couple key influencers outside of SB Nation started to pick up on S&P Plus and built it into the vernacular. So um, who, you do, know, who are I, you thinking about? Well, okay, so great example. So ESP, we treat ESPN like a conference. We treat them like a member of, of the <laughs> okay. sport that we cover because they, well, it's because they have so much influence. Yeah. And accordingly, when Reese Davis took over game day from Chris Fowler, mm. they pitched us on writing about what that meant. And to me, that show... And they're my competitor in a lot of ways, but right. that show has an influence on the entire sport. So I go and I spent like, I think it was four or five days total shadowing Reese around different aspects of his job. And he brought up unsolicited Connolly stuff. Wow. He said, yeah, your buddy Connolly. He said, that's how I'm looking. We were talking, you know, I'm talking to him probably in late July, this is two years ago. Yeah. And he said, yeah, you know, I'm using, I'm using your buddy Connolly stuff. That, that's how I can better understand larger functions of your play in concise manner. That's great. So when the host of game day is is comfortable with that, right. I think that's going to impart on on a larger audience. Right. So how how do you use outside of your work with 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 Bill? How are you using analytics? How does it inform your journalism? I don't I, I don't want to lie. I don't want to lie on accident. And, and when I get into the when I get into the analytical side of of football, when I go in and bed with a team, sometimes I can tell them something that's going to make them feel better or worse. Mm-hmm. It allows me to be more situational and it just creates more context for me. I'll be honest, the more I know, the the, the stronger the trust that I build with a source. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and there's, there's a fine line of the journalist with walking into a coach's office and acting like you know what they do for a living, right. which is sort of patronizing and naive. But if you show that you put in the work to try and understand, to look at it through multiple prisms, I think that you you earn a certain respect from them, right? And and the, that's the other thing that's happened in, in really this off season is I've seen a lot of coaches talk to me about S and P plus. Is that right? And and they want to embrace. Yeah, sure. I mean, adjusted lines, adjusted uh, rushing yardage. That's definitely mm-hmm. one. Trying to understand the context of offensive line injuries. These are things that are hidden inside of a box score. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, they, they want it as much as we do, and, and I think that's helped. The, it helps my relationship. That's probably the biggest thing. You just you don't want to you don't want to sound dumb. You don't want to sound cliched. I think that's that's always been a huge fear of mine. But it's wanting it, to be informed. You're, but you can imagine an analyst walking in and sounding like an analyst, and so you're right. coming up with like this regression coefficient here, this obscure stat stat here. You're 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 being that good translator, and so you're not quite going all the way full geek. 
but you're using right. the geek information to be more credible. That, that, well, when I, so when I go to a team, I will call Bill and I say, what do we think about this? And, and what I mean by that is, what do you think about this? And then secondly, what, what does S&P think about this? They're sort of two entities. I think people yeah. conflate the quants with their work sometimes. Yeah. The work kind of lives and breathes. Well, hell, you're things. the one who always calls him a robot. You're, you're, you're helping the conflation. Well, we programmed him to have his own soul. It's okay. <laughs> it's, it's more like advanced Cylons. All right. All right. Not, All right. Not, the, not the bad, the good Cylons that you see at the end. Spoiler alert. Uh, okay. Um, but Bill has opinions that sometimes the S&P does not reflect and vice versa. You know, we, a, a great example would be how high Notre Dame finished last year, even though they were four and eight. Right. Um, and so I will go to him and I'll say, what does S&P plus about, think about this? Or what do you think about this? And then I'll build out narratives. And I hate that word because what does it really mean? But I will build out ideas. And I will take those to the coaching staff, and that's okay. Usually, refreshing for them. Yeah, but this is this is that's such a great lesson. We we do try to evangelize good practices here, and so much of what we try to do with analytics is undermine narratives, like take kill narratives. Essentially, you guys were right. big about killing these zombie narratives a couple of years ago. You're talking about the other side of this, which is okay. Once you've once you've got the deep insight, you still have to translate it back into the narrative language because that's what the world traffics in. Okay. You, just want, you just want to be an informed narrative, a correct narrative. Right. Good example is a uh, ball coach goes out on what I call the rubber chicken circuit, which is the alumni circuit for major programs where they go and the fundraising kicks. It usually happens after spring football before summer vacation. They're going to get there and then they're going to say something to the effect of, you know, we were really banged up last year. How many times have you heard that? <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Uh-huh. Really banged up last year. Um, I'm an Atlanta Falcons fan. I paid money to go to the Super Bowl. Sorry, Among buddy. many regrets I have. I'm sorry. Right, but when they say, hey, they were really banged up on defense, okay, what did that mean? What did that actually mean? And, and then you can break down and you can say, well, X amount of starts per position, right? And if you can take it two steps further or three steps further and show specifically, be it a situational down and distance or be it any kind of average yards allowed, and then maybe even couple that with the sort of the kissing cousin of quant, which I think is, is the – the, the play calling, the schematic world that's yep. become so popular online. Yep. You really start to inform the reader. And isn't that what we're, that's what we're here for. Mm-hmm. So like I use the Falcons as a great example of watching that fourth quarter, but then coming to understand it in the offseason specifically, well, yeah, they ran out of gas. Well, right, why? Right. Who, right. What right. is it a failure of? Mm-hmm. So we're talking to Stephen Godfrey. Stephen is a journalist with a writer with SB nation. Also the co-host of the podcast, Podcast Ain't Played Nobody, great college football podcast. He co-hosts with Bill Conley. Steven's been on the show a couple of times before, or one time anyway, at least a couple of years ago. Um, Steven, one last question along these lines about analytics. What do you think we can do better as a user of analytics, as, a, as an evangelist to some extent? What do you think we need to do better, our well, community? It, it, you know, I don't know if this is specific to quants, but I think it's specific to anybody who's conveying large amounts of information for a living. You need to create entry points. You know, fresh eyes help in the editing process. I'm working on an investigative piece right now with the NCAA that it's been a year and a half of digging through legalese specifically, just intense, intense lawyer language to put it in the parlance, the common, the common tongue. I mean, and my job is to create points of access for someone with no affiliation with Mm. the story, Mm. a foothold, if you will. And then if you choose to go on this journey with us and, and dig in deep, that's great. And we'll, we'll keep you. You know, we'll, we'll check on you along the way. We don't want you to get lost. One of my favorite films is The Big Short in the last 10 years mm-hmm. because they took an intense, 
intense, impenetrable world of numbers. And they created all of these access points. Right. And they, they created very simple human stories to go along with, with educating you on what essentially is a story about math. Right. And, and, and just because you work on the, quant, the hard quant side doesn't mean you can't use a more just basic communicative skill to, to, to get a, a larger audience. Good. I think that's good. a good thing. I love this idea of an access point and, and so definitely something analysts could use more of. Um, it's a fantastic tip. We're talking to Stephen Godfrey. Stephen, can we step back and talk about, um, step into the season that is and talk about what, what you're looking forward to and what you think is going to go on. You know, you're you're we're, we're going to avoid the Ole Miss stuff. You're an Ole Miss grad. They've been controversial down there. But I am curious as 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 you think about these opening weekend, like what what are you looking forward to as a fan of football, having been away from it for whatever it is now, seven months, eight months. What are you most looking forward to about games actually being on? What are you going to be paying attention to? I like that we're very bullet. We're very chalky right now. And I, I love that because anytime we get chalky in this industry, something insane happens. Chalky. Did a ten year, you chalky, say just to everyone's like at expectations, Alabama, Ohio State. That's just going to be what it's going to be. Sitting, I mean, we're sitting here talking. There was a huge takeout in some major newspaper I saw a couple weeks ago that Alabama, Florida State is. Uh, I mean, they're starting in Atlanta. They're going to end in Atlanta. Oh being God! A national title game. Yeah, right. When, when, when does that happen? Yeah, <laughs> right. When does that? We uh, we we so neglect. We worship the brand so much in college football, and, and because the disparity is so wide and large, if you don't approach the sport with sort of a, a celebration of, of all the weird eccentricities that happen in the mid-majors, the smaller schools, if you just look at those 20, 30 programs, you, you become, I think, very myopic. Mm-hmm. And so we're in that phase right now, and what I've seen in years past, in the 15-so-odd years I've been doing this, is that when that happens, chaos tends to rectify that or you know kind of balance that problem Mm -hmm. so we did a 10-year retrospective of the 2007 season which Mm -hmm. was just completely bonkers Mm -hmm. i'm not saying we're going to get that level of of alchemy but i definitely don't see oh yeah you have pencil in usc pencil in ohio state pencil in alabama florida state i think there's there's probably a, a a group of teams neglected or overlooked right now that are just going to cause problems and hopefully early consistently so through the season. Those are the best seasons. Right. That's you know, a, it's, it's, a, it's like pacing a, a novel. You want to make sure it works in acts and structures. Okay. I, I, I love the idea. It's a great reminder. We, it, it, you, I think you're spot on with the psychology of it. We just obsess and it seems inevitable. And we actually, it's a theme that we talk mm-hmm. about on the, on the, on the, on the show is that, Whenever something in sports seems inevitable, you need to back up and think about your assumptions. But, man, this is one of those seasons. I mean, Alabama, we have them way up top. Ohio State, everybody has these two teams way up top. Right. And it's, it's, it's hard. I mean, it's hard to see. It's hard. But, 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 but history says things, unexpected things will happen, especially in college football. I know you don't love the prognostication business, but if you had to put a few chips on some of the on some of the outer line yeah, well, teams. Well, what's an unexpected thing that you're expecting to see? Well, I think it would be unexpected that Penn State repeats in the Big Ten. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Think about the way Penn State leaves the season, recruits and develops, and then also think about the way Ohio State leaves the season. And at some point, we convince ourselves of, of going back to the brand and going back to the label. Yeah, yeah. So that, I don't even really think that's going out on a limb so much. Um, but it, But it would be... I think it would defy a lot of people's expectations. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think Alabama being uh, infallible. Yeah, better. because they've you got know, a, what, what? they've got a, some t- tougher competition in the West than they have the last couple of years, right? With Auburn well, and LSU. Uh, 
and I think the coordinator change is going to be massive. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. We haven't seen a fully developed Jalen Hurts. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying they're bad. <laughs> they're not. What I'm saying is we've seen teams that, that functionally were inferior at almost every level beat Alabama. You mm-hmm. know, Specifically, you look at like a high-talented Ole Miss team or Texas A&M team in years past. Those teams are able to reach up and sort of grab them. Yep. And if, if it happens twice in a season, it's going to throw everything into disrepair. Yep. So um, what else am I looking forward to? There's a, uh, Matt Canada at LSU. Yeah. I think – Again, to 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 pick apart a, a, a cliche, uh, when you say that an offensive coordinator is multiple, I think he might be the most multiple right? offensive coordinator in the entire country. All right. The difference between this year and what he's done in Wisconsin and Pittsburgh and NC State is that when you have a basically peak talent at a program like LSU, he's going to play with toys that he's never had before. Right. So I'm interested to see what he does. Now he doesn't have necessarily the best situation at quarterback. But he's been able to compensate for that at, at other stops. And so I think, hey, you know what? LSU is going to be creative instead of um, mundane. And that's that's great. That's, I think that's good for the sport. Stephen, can I ask you a question about multiple in Canada? There, You know, since Bill Walsh, people have kind of valued some of that. But there was a pushback the other direction, especially with Art Bryles and the success of his system in Baylor, which was ridiculously simple in many ways. Yeah. And do you think that's turned? I mean, for a while, I thought people were kind of going that way, and it feels the you know the reification of some of the Matt Canada's of the world or the Becks of the world. It feels like that multiple thing is coming back. In college, it's tough to be, it's tough to run that sophisticated offense whenever you're turning over personnel that much. Where do you think this thing's settling out? I think multiple means so many things that we we may actually be on two different two different wavelengths here. When I say multiple, I think the concepts. I talked to Canada a lot in April. The concepts he's preaching in specific position groups are not necessarily, uh, you know, uh, calculus to consumer math when you compare it to a, a Bryles air raid. He's still trying to break down core elements for receiver groups to identify, for the quarterback to identify. Multiple usually means formation, motion, and line calls. Okay. So the onus there, it really goes back to the quarterback. Mm-hmm. And what I think the criticism, because the NFL has a terrible, terrible habit of sending criticism backwards into college, right? So they, the big complaint for the last five or six years has been, you know, these quarterbacks aren't NFL ready because they've run these stupid college offenses. Right. right. That I think is infected backwards a little bit. We've already we've seen Bobby Petrino talk about giving Lamar Jackson more of a pro style um, atmosphere and play calls and things that he does at the line specifically to get him ready for the draft. And it's very interesting to hear someone be so public about that. That's crazy. Wow. Louisville mm-hmm. doesn't, it's not broken. Louisville don't fix it. Right. But he's doing that. I think he's doing that for a lot of different reasons. He wants to position a quarterback to do well in the NFL. It's something Petrino's never had, even though he's a very good quarterback coach. And I think also this is a very coded way of saying, hey, let's not get him killed when he's, <laughs> when he's, when he's leaving the pocket 15, 20, yeah, you know, 25 times a game. Yeah. Well, speaking of Louisville, that's a conference I think is uh, maybe especially interesting. They've got three incredibly strong teams on the on the Atlantic. And then it's I, if you're looking for surprises, I think that Coastal is going to be fun this year, right? With Virginia Tech probably being better than expected. Miami on the way back. But even a Louisville making noise in the Atlantic. No, I couldn't. Do, what do you think the chances are something interesting, something non-Florida State comes out of the ACC? I think it's very possible. I called them in the offseason the respectable cul-de-sac. It's like people who 
finally kind of get their finances in order. They buy that McMansion out in like the, you know, the up and coming suburb. Like it's not, it's not old money, right? Right. It's not necessarily new money, but it's, it's, it's stable and consistent. It's upper middle class because Mm -hmm. that's what's lacked in the ACC. Mm -hmm. Clemson really for the last five years has, has done every single thing from budget to facility to player to play call like an elite program would. That's mm-hmm. why they won a national title. Florida State, same situation. After that, it's been a gully before you get to a, really a, a smattering of bad programs. So VTech had a, a kind of an existential crisis when you talk about having you know, a guy who's been there for 20, 30 years. I think Fuente was the single best fit hire in college football that mm-hmm. I've seen in my time covering the sport. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's think, rolling into his second year now. Maybe, maybe going to step up. Uh, I think playbook expansion. If, if if you go by what he was able to do at Memphis, the problem is they replaced the, the quarterback uh, Evans that they did not expect to lose so fast. Okay. But uh, but playbook expansion in year two to year three. Um, I wrote about it when he was at Memphis. It's it, they can do some really fun, really dangerous things. Yep. And, yep. They, and they're behind that in Blacksburg. Blacksburg's a weird place because it's so culturally conservative in a lot of ways that even in football terms but at the same time they've always embraced these sort of strange ideologies you know like beamer ball and right. the emphasis on special teams it's, right. it's such a it's it is pure appalachia for better or worse um and yet they really they kind of run a little lab up there on 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 sort of i think it was born out of necessity, you know, and what you can recruit to that school and what is available in the area and then how we can change that on the field. Mm-hmm. Um, I, mm-hmm. I've always been fascinated by tech. Mm-hmm. Uh, Miami is a really, if so, I don't know if this is necessarily a quant talking or a, a quant talking point, but if Miami is able to win their division and go to the conference championship in a year that Georgia might end up eight, four, seven, right. five. Um, again, you just talk about the, just the dread that people feel in trying to understand Mark Rick. Um, right. Miami, I think, is doing everything right in a very slow way. And if they're patient with him, they're going to be fine. Mm-hmm. I really do think they're going to be fine. They're going to have to modify their identity, though. I think the, the, the days of what we think good Miami is supposed to look and act and sound like, it's probably over. Right, right. Um, but in terms of a talent, I mean, Honestly, let's boil all that down. He's a great evaluator of talent. He sits in one of the most talent-rich regions in the in exactly. country. Mm-hmm. And if they can just fix the pipeline, they're going to be fine. Mm-hmm. It really is that simple. So we're talking to Stephen Godfrey, SB Nation journalist and co-host of the podcast Ain't Played Nobody podcast. Stephen, you you guys on the show really evangelize the group of five teams. And, and really it's a broader celebration of college football. And it's a, it's a pushback against the over-focus, especially by the ESPNs of the world, of the very most elite programs. A lot of other schools out there playing interesting football, lots to watch and enjoy. It's Can you do us the favor? You talked about analysts providing access points whenever they're trying to convey a lot of information. Sure. Can you give us an access point into the group of five this year? Is there a team out there, is there a story that if you told us a little bit more, we'd be ready to engage and enjoy? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I think in terms of just Pure performance, uh, Troy. Okay. Uh, Troy University down in South Alabama, very small teachers' college, second smallest college town in FBS behind West Point. Oh wow. Um, Neil, Neil Brown, he is a he was an offensive coordinator at Texas Tech, but it was during the Tuberville year, so don't think, okay. don't really think Leach. He okay. comes off the air raid tree, but he's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a play caller at Kentucky for a little while. He has, I mean, in cliched Southern terms, he's got, he's got those boys clicking. Okay. And really what that just means is he's been able to find these really beautiful ratios of what 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 is your limit on what you can bring in in terms of talent 
what is the maximum amount of of performance you can get out of that talent window at a small G5 school in Alabama and how how best can you can you distribute that in terms of the type of teams you play against, the type of offense you need to run to beat them, yep. and then what can you do on defense specifically? Again, thinking in those Texas Tech terms of let's not necessarily be world beaters. Let's find a contain and prevent unit. And you know, I guess the, I guess again, the cliche there has been to you know bend but don't break, but mm-hmm. it's working for them. Mm-hmm. And by the way, they open at Boise, so that's mm-hmm. just going to be a fantastic game to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a guy uh, right across the uh, the city from you guys. You guys are in Penn, right? Mm-hmm. Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeff Collins at Temple. Mm-hmm. I think he's one of the most dynamic personalities in college football. He was a guy who used to create these illustrations on recruiting letters when he was a, a low-level recruiting coordinator. He's got a fantastic sharp mind. It's kind of wrapped in this Georgia accent and. I think what he does at Temple, you really start to notice when programs are able to sustain at the G5 level. When when the hot rising coach leaves and you sustain, that's when you really start to pay attention. You know, the one that jumps out at me is like Mike Norvell at Memphis. Jeff Collins at Temple, I think they may regress a little bit just because of the talent they lost in the draft. But if you can turn, if you can create an atmosphere of aggression and talent and expectation at Temple, that's that uh, when other ADs go shopping, other ADs of major programs, that's what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. You, w- when you can maximize a resource, and I mean, I, I don't mean to speak ill of Temple, but when you look at their facilities and their history, their resources compared to other programs, I mean, they shouldn't be this good. Mm-hmm. I think he's going to pick up where Rule left off. Um, so they've got uh, the interesting games. They open with Notre Dame, for example. Yes, they do. Which could and be great fun. He's the kind of guy who has absolutely. He has a great way of managing the psychology of these kids who weren't recruited by the Notre Dames of the world, but yet not making the moment too big for them. Right. I've embedded with him before, and his psychology with those kids is great. Um, one to watch out for is a guy named Frank Wilson at, at University of Texas San Antonio, a program that didn't exist. Right. I think it's like 10-odd years ago. Uh-huh. I, mean, I, I, I just visited them in July. They're, they still don't even really have all the functional like facilities that you would need to run a D1 football program. He is the king of New Orleans. Okay. This guy, this guy was the athletic director for New Orleans Public High Schools for a year. He was a, a New Orleans high school coach. He became the ace recruiter for Les Miles for Ed Ogeron. This guy knows talent better than anybody on Interstate 10, and he has above expectations and on a much faster schedule been able to put a winner together at UTSA, which just really shouldn't exist. Right. At least as fast. No, right? I'm I'm from Texas, and we barely think of UTSA as a school. At least mm-hmm. back in the day, we didn't. Okay, so you've given us Troy. Temple and UTSA as great access points in the group of five. Before we let you go, I've got to ask you about Texas. This is my alma mater. This is what I sure. what I believe. And you got to tell me what you think is going to happen down there. Obviously, people are high on Tom Herman. Obviously, recruiting has gone well. Change at Oklahoma changes dynamics with Stoops leaving. But right. what what do you what do you, how are, how are you thinking about Texas and what do you think we should expect out of Texas? Everything's fine. Just take a breath. I, I'm not. This is not a joke. I, I, I tell people this all the time in Texas. You got what you wanted. You got what you needed. I fully believe that. I've spent a lot of time with Tom Herman. He fits. I think it's probably a faux pas for Herman for me to say this, but he took the Houston job to get the Texas job to right. do what he was doing. Okay, right. this is what he's always wanted, and and he is going to take a modernized youthful approach of the urban Meyer system and he's going to implement that and I don't mean the play calling I mean everything structural everything philosophical everything cultural however it's not going to instantly translate 
Charlie left them a ton of talent. For sure. Everyone had always talked about 18 as being the pivot point for Charlie. I just think, you know, Charlie was really two games away from keeping his job. Mm -hmm. I I do believe that. So Mm -hmm. I think they're going to make a lot of noise this year. I don't think they're going to become an immediate, consistent national title winner. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know if Herman wants that in year one. Mm-hmm. I think he wants to create a little bit more of a path for for some of the some of the guys in that locker room. Texas, as you know, this as an alumnus, what you have to deprogram out of the culture there oh is my the God. biggest problem in yeah. college football. It's it's the it's the thing that ultimately Mac couldn't hang. It, it's such a hard job to shield and adjust the psychology in at UT Austin specifically that I think it wore Mac down and Charlie never had a chance. Mm-hmm. I love mm-hmm. Charlie Strong. He told me on the record last year for our preview, I don't care about the outside culture. I don't care about the outside influence. Mm. And that's great. But you cannot do that in Austin, Texas. Mm. You right. have to manage that circus and that and the influence circus. that it has on these five star kids. Right. And that's what I think that's why Tom has the job. Right. He seems to be doing well on both sides, which is a heck of a trick. I don't know how these guys do it, but he does seem to be managing both the players. And I the... love I love everything about the hire. I love the idea of the guy who got fitted for a grill by Paul Wall at Houston coming in <laughs> and, and to, to, toity, to toity Texas. That's with right. Its, with its 35 gajillion billionaires that all think that they should have a control of the program and how he handles that. It's right. fascinating. Well, that, you know, happily we've got football to watch as well so they've got this great home and home with usc starting this year they're going out to the coliseum third week of the season it'll be a lot of fun to see what he does herman of course has a record for doing well in some of these big underdog games Absolutely. and that's going to be kind of a coming out it's gonna be a lot of fun steven godfrey wanna, again i don't like to prognosticate but let me say this that's an incredibly winnable game for Texas. yeah and that's great to hear all right man listen steven godfrey thanks for coming on the show very much appreciated thank y'all all right, that was Stephen Godfrey, journalist at SB Nation, co-host of Podcast Ain't Played Nobody, a fantastic follower, writer, observer, analyst of the college football world. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. <laughs> but our listeners have to realize that, uh, Kate, happy birthday. Yeah, thanks, guys. That's You're at the uh, halfway point now. <laughs> something like that. Something like that. That's courtesy sound engineer Dion Simpkins. Dion's in the sound booth today, running the board. He's sporting his jealousy-inducing orange Beats by Dre. He's the only guy around here with like real headphones. We got Radio Shack things we got going on over here. Dion has his beats. And uh, that's a little birthday reference. We've had a few birthdays around here. You know who else had a birthday? You know who else is in this club of ours? The, uh, the, uh, just Gundy, Mike Gundy, just turned 50 this week. Wow. Why is that notable? Because Mike Gundy's got the most famous rant in the history of college football press conferences the I'm a man, I'm 40 rant well that man just turned that's 50. a decade ten, ago ten, now 10 years now <laughs> uh, yeah how different what how what would a 50 year old rant look like if that's what he said when he was 40 what's the 50 year old show, show us <laughs> show us like, what a 50 year old rant looks like <laughs> talk to us well, give us 10 I, minutes on got, texas we still got some fire we st- even even up here so Dion, thank you for that we are still talking football we're rolling into the last quarter of the show you guys can join the conversation one eight four four wharton 
1-844-942-7866. Just off the phone with Stephen Godfrey. We're going to debrief that conversation in a little bit. But right now, we have a phone call from Eric in Nantucket. Eric, good morning. Well, good morning, Kate. I heard it's my co-host and best friend's birthday today. So I'm calling in to wish you a that's happy 50th, and not, welcome to the club. Not just any Eric. That's Eric Bradlow, our co-host and collaborator. I did not know that's who that was. What are you doing in Nantucket, man? That's a fancy place for you to be. Come on, man. What are you doing up there? Well, we have a vacation home here, and of course, I'm keeping my eye on sports. So, right. you know, gives me an opportunity to diversify, get to see a little Boston sports action while I'm up here. A little, yeah. you know, don't get to see as much of that as I, you know, I got to hate on somebody. So, yeah. I, I'm sure Shane's. You got get to see where football, how football's maybe played a well. Patriot hat on today. Yeah. yeah, right. He's got his Red Sox hat on today. It's usually one of the two, right? He's. He, yeah. We're not talking baseball, but he's sporting some baseball. Some baseball equipment. So, Eric. Well, of course, Kate, Shane must have been happy with the record that was broken. I don't remember the 20 year old's name on Boston, but he hit a home run off Araldus Chapman, the, the fastest pitch ever on StatCast. Devers, yeah. To be hit for a home run. Oh, really? How fast yeah. was it? 102.8. 102.8. Oh, my goodness. That's fantastic and ridiculous. Chapman's given up, I think, two home runs in his entire career to left handers. And it was oh one of them. Oh, my goodness. Good for him. 20-year-old kid, huh? That's great. But it also, Cade, you, you, we've talked about this on our show, Wharton Moneyball, of course, before. Um, it's interesting about speed in versus speed out. So the launch speed out was interestingly only, I put in quotes only, because we have the Aaron Judges and the Giancarlo Stanton, was only 105. I would have expected a much larger launch speed out given in, but as we've had uh, experts on before, actually it's a very small determinant right. of the launch speed out it's is the actual pitch coming in. Counterintuitive. You don't get much help on the on the speed in when you're trying to get it out. Eric, tell us about uh, any thoughts you have on football. Uh, and, and I'm just curious, you know, we're rolling into the season. We've got college football starting in just, you know, like 10 days or something, NFL a little bit further out. What are you most looking forward to? What are you thinking about? What are you curious about rolling into the season? Yeah, so, you know, with college, let's start with, because I know you guys were talking to Stephen Godfrey. I heard some of that, and I know you guys have obviously, I've been following our email chains behind the scenes on Wharton Moneyball to see all the different rankings and everybody. You know, I'm always interested to see what, you know, non, if you'd like, Power 5 team is going to rise and have an opportunity to kind of, you know, make it into that final group. Yeah. Is it going to be one of the, you know, is it going to be a, you know, obviously TCU for many years was possibly in that role. We've had Boise State in that role for many years. And so I'm a eternal underdog kind of guy. And so I think we all have good beliefs about some of the top teams that are, be, are going to be there. And I'm interested both in what I'll call the underdog teams and whether a different Power Five team like this Michigan finally get over the hump. Apparently this is Harbaugh's first year where it's all his guys so that's really what I'm looking for. I'm not worried about the top teams. I'm interested about the, let's call it the real underdogs and those teams that have been kind of on the fringe. All right. Well, we'll give you one to look for, and you might like it because you've got Florida affiliation. But the, the, our strongest forecast by far for a group of five team is South Florida. So South Florida has a, a great, exciting dual-threat quarterback Charlie Strong is moving there. This is his first year after having been in Texas. He inherits a loaded roster, as they say, and they're expected they could go undefeated. They could easily go undefeated. We have them forecasted at like 9.3 wins or something, but that's because we're regressive, as you should be. But we're expecting a big a big season out of South Florida. 
I don't think that's going to be enough to get them into the playoff. The the way my model for how group of five teams get into the playoff is very is very Bayesian. I think you have to do it, and you have to have more than one year. It's not right. It's not just, right. but you almost have to prime. They don't want that flash of the pan you, feel. You, you got to prime the the media, and you got to prime the voters. You have to prime the world. Mm-hmm. For being good, and no one's primed right now for South. You gotta Florida. get screwed in season one, and then that's actually right. make it in season that's two. That's exactly right. Well, so I, yeah, I have two questions for you guys. Um, the first question is, uh, Kate, given what you've said, and I love the idea of South Florida. Um, the first question is something I know you've been studying in the Massey Peabody system. Maybe you talked about it in the first half hour or so. Is the role of the coach? And so you mentioned Charlie Strong. Obviously, you know he was both celebrated and somewhat maligned in his time at Texas. Um, does he add anything? Like, does him going, like, if he goes undefeated, given his history, does he get an extra bump? Do you, does, is that built into the Massey Peabody system that Charlie Strong is the coach, or is that something you guys are still working on? We just added it this year, this month. It was the one tweak to our model in college football this year. We went out and estimated coaching effects for the different stats that underlie our model, and we did find some reliable differences, and they're not huge, but they're in there. And we ran our preseason numbers without them, and then we ran our preseason numbers with them, and there is a difference there. Now, I, what's Charlie going to get? Charlie's probably going to get a negative number because right. of his experience at Texas, even though he had some great years at Louisville. He's clearly got the ability to lead a team to a very good record. Um, everyone in the world thinks South Florida is a better fit for him than Texas, and he's he's got strengths as a coach. Maybe he's learned something about his weaknesses based on the last few years. Presumably, he's shored that up a little bit. I think he's going to – I mean, he's, he's, he's got skills as a coach. And he's got a great roster. I do think he's going to bring value to that team. Yeah, the second point I was going to bring up is exactly what Shane just mentioned is, could you imagine in some sense – let's imagine they go undefeated. Let's they imagine could, also that the, you know, we're going to screw you for at least one year, which has happened, as we know, to TCU, Boise State, everyone. They always do that. How much pressure will there be? Because be, they would be in a major bowl game, not the yeah, they'll final get a four. New Year's imagine six. the importance then of that game – to win that game, whether it's you know whether it's Boise State beating Oklahoma back in yeah. again as I've considered yeah. the greatest college football game I've ever seen, um, that game will be could be very well a defining moment for that program over the next three to five years. Could could be, and I'm all, I already want to short them. I want to short South Florida in the New Year's Bowl. That's I'm, my predictions are they're going to make it and they're going to be overrated in the game. But I also think they don't have to win the game to get that bump you need for the next year. I th- they go undefeated, and they're going to be in the you know they're going to be an overrated top ten, top twelve kind of team. They're going to have a lot of attention on them, and if they somehow manage to deliver the second year, they'll be in a position to actually be in the playoff. I'll also be very interested. Not, I mean, I'll also be interested to see and to track. Well, obviously, I will because I'll be sitting next to you throughout the year. Uh, watching how South Florida moves in the uh, Massey Peabody system yeah, yeah. as they continue to win. And um, something else, which might be if, if you're as certain as that they're likely to have a very strong record, you know, it'll be interesting to see the difference between the fans' view. view right. which, you know, they may win lots of games by 28, 35, 42 points, which, again, in the Massey Peabody, in any reasonable system, you downweight these blowout wins, but the consumer has a big problem. That's it's right. really hard for that, us to downweight right. those in our mind. That's right. Well, let me, let me also say they don't have many opportunities this year. This is the other thing. It could be, I suppose it could be, that they could come in from scratch, and if they had some, some real opportunities to prove themselves in the field, they could overcome that, that, that week prior. But they just don't have the schedule to afford that right now. Um, you also asked about Michigan. 
And the, th- the thing about Michigan is that they graduated basically their entire team. I mean, it's just unbelievable the talent that Harbaugh had, the, the senior-laden team he had last year, and how much that is gone. So we expect them to be good. I mean, we're, we have them dropping from, like, the end of the season, number seven or so for us. We have them dropping down to number 12, which is clearly still very strong. But they're in a very tough division. Ohio State is looks to be kind of a transcendent team this year, so it's really going to be tough for them to overcome that. They've also got Penn State. Pesky yeah, was, Penn State. I, I, Penn State's being discussed now, I guess, as like maybe the number two to uh, Michigan as opposed to – I mean number two to Ohio State as opposed to Michigan. So we, we have Michigan playing we, – we had them starting the season just a little bit worse than Penn State. They play a little bit tougher schedule. They don't play a tough schedule, but a little bit tougher schedule. And we expect about a half a win more out of Penn State. But they're both just completely overshadowed by Ohio State. But, you know, the thing thing about that Big Ten, as tough as that division is, because the rest of the conference is so weak, those teams have on net easier schedules. You expect their schedule to be a a net positive for those guys because they play so many lame teams, especially out of the West. I guess the, you know, I'm just looking, since we're on the phone, I just looked up South Florida, just returning to South Florida for one second. I guess their big games of the year would be Houston. I mean, yeah. I assume Houston's That's right. pretty reasonable. I yep. guess Cincinnati and Houston would be their big games of the year. So as you said, and maybe Temple, but I mean, those are their big opportunities. That's These right. aren't power teams, but at least they're playing three or four teams that people would recognize on a national stage. That's right. And unfortunately, I mean, Houston and Temple have had years recently, even Cincinnati, where they were at the national level and thought, you know, almost an elite team. But those those teams, are they're all strong, you know, relatively speaking, but they're middle of the pack across 130 teams. They're basically middle of the pack. And so that's just not going to help them very much. Eric, what else? Let me let me let me give you a couple of other kind of observations from our from our numbers and see what kind of reactions you have. And Shane, Shane, Shane sat and listened to Stephen Godfrey run through his take on the college football world. Another team out of the big a big 10 that I think we're going to hear a lot about in kind of a similar fashion to South Florida, is Wisconsin. We have Wisconsin with one of the absolute easiest schedules in the in the in Division One. We have them something like they, they get almost a game and a half benefit in expected wins from their schedule. It's absurd and it's because they're the only strong team in the Big Ten West. Right. So well, that, they, yeah, they that's could, what I was just going to get to. We ex- we expect almost ten wins out of those guys. They play they do have to play a couple of the East teams, but I, we expect those guys to, to, to look good throughout the year. They're a decent team, but they're going to look better than they are. And they kind of have a cakewalk into the Big Ten Championship. If we're going to step out on a limb and say, you know, they're going to walk into the Big Ten Championship and then probably get pasted by Ohio <laughs> State. Well, the, the, the interesting part, and I'll, I, I know we're going to have a lot of discussion about this on the show, let's imagine they scrape, let's say they get into the Big Ten Championship game again, being the only, let's call it, good team in the Big Ten West. And then, but whatever reason, who knows how, you know, football bounces strange way, two turnovers, three turnovers, all of a sudden they win the Big Ten. How much do you guys believe a Big Ten team will be in the Final Four? Like, is a, by every, let's imagine every sabermetric view, Massey Peabody system view, that Wisconsin is the 20th best team in the nation, but for some reason beats the Big Ten East champ, whether it's Ohio State, Penn State, whoever, you know, Michigan, whoever it tends to be, are they guaranteed to be in the national champion in the Final Four? Or to follow up on that, is that the kind of opportunity like a team like South Florida or, or right. what do these other teams need in order to sneak in there? That, right. Right. Do you ever think they would leave out the Big Ten champ? Not an undefe- they would never leave out an undefeated Big Ten champ, but would they leave out a one-loss 
for by sure. everyone's measure, mediocre Big Ten champ. For sure, and I think there are two main considerations. One, the, the committee has gotten better about identifying and prioritizing identifying the best teams and not just the best record. And so they're, they're, they've kind of migrated that way, which is, which is nice to see. Um, and the other thing is that there's competition for those spots. There are five Power Five conferences, only four spots. And so there's almost always people on the edge there with a case to be made to be included. And so by no means are they going to automatically slot someone in there. In fact, in some, you know, they would have a, here, here's how far it's come, Eric. If you have a, say, 10 and 2 Wisconsin team, go in and upset an undefeated Ohio State team. And let's say Wisconsin was power ranked as 10 or 12 in the country and mm-hmm. Ohio State was power ranked as one or two in the country. I think the committee would consider putting Ohio State in mm-hmm. before they'd put in Wisconsin. That's that's how far they've come. I mean they they probably wouldn't in that case, but they might. And it would depend it would depend on is South Florida hanging around on the fringe? Is is USC hanging around on the fringe? Like what's the competition? Well, I think you've brought this up. I think you and I, you know how much I was hoping last year for the, what was it? I, I think we were all calling it the doomsday scenario where in some sense, like Alabama would have had to, I make this up, lose to Auburn and lose this game. And then your view was they would probably still have been in the yeah, final la- four. Last year and they so, would have, yes. Yeah. yeah. So it, it, at some level, um, what's good to see is that what you just said, Cade, made, makes me feel better, not just about our three-plus years on Moneyball, but collectively, you know, today's your you know, 50th birthday, but adding up our Tomorrow, tomorrow. Comments, I'm not there yet. Don't tomorrow, rush me tomorrow, off yet. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. It's, yeah, you, you haven't joined the club yet. Yeah, it's tomorrow. Um, if you add up the three people on the phone, or me on the phone and you two guys live in the Wharton studio, we, we have over 50 years of experience, and it's glad it, working in statistics and sabermetrics and stuff, and it's great to see that – you just made a statement that the committee would look beyond win-loss record and would actually look at the power ranking and more sophisticated analytics and would possibly even you know, leave out a team or put in a team that had just lost their championship game of their conference. Yeah, you know, it's, it's heartening in a sense in that they have a better appreciation for the true quality, but it does raise the question of what's the relevance of these games? What's the relevance of the record? And, and, I'm, and, I'm an, and, and I, in I some think senses, things... it'll at least in the sort of short term, if something like that would happen, I think it would sort of some people's perception of what the committee is doing would almost seem a little less transparent, right? Because now they're suddenly taking something that's a little bit more. You know, I mean, you could put a number to it, and you guys do, but it's going to seem to the public as a more subjective ranking yeah. than the outcome-based stuff right. that, like, wins and losses. I mean, to be honest with you, I would be fine if I mean, I, if there were only four conferences. I would be 100% fine with just taking the four conference champions, letting it play out on the field. Because, I mean, I, I want to seed these things based on power rankings, and if there ever is a discretion to be made, I want them to use power rankings, but... If we can set it up so where to where it's actually you know do it on the field, I'm I'm 100 fine with that. But what do you do with the you know South Floridas and the Boise States and the te- you know the teams of the world that you know have those incredible seasons and possibly maybe not to, maybe we're looking at UCF's record. It's not uh, at USF's rec- uh, schedule. It's not them this year. But what if they do schedule some you know two or three power games and win those? Do you leave them out? Or 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 uh, I mean just to kind of make the analogy to NF- back to NFL for a second. And like, you know, the, the AFC South putting like a nine and seven team in the playoffs every year that just gets pasted by so somebody. Do, do, <laughs> do you sort of respect that that's still a division and that division winner always gets in? Because yeah. like, it's kind of the analogous argument, yeah. right? 
I mean, I, I, I want, I want a kind of a hybrid system where you seed these things based on power rankings and numbers and analytics, but you let, you let something play out on the field. And the question is like, how early in the process do you turn it over to the field? The old BCS system, they only put the championship game on the field. Everything else was determined through, you know, this very opaque system. Now we have three games on the field. And you could argue maybe we should have another four, you know, mm-hmm. a, a tournament of, of eight. But there's going to be some balance between what you do subjectively with discretion, and that's going to hopefully be based on numbers, and what you leave to be played out on the field. I think you've brought up a great point, Caden. I think we talk about this on the show quite often, which is the idea of optimal design. I think you asked exactly the right question, which is at some point in time, it used to be the last game, now it's the last three games. At some point in time, you leave it to outcome based on the field. That's right. And I think you have to. Yeah, the right. fans demand it. Everybody, who cares whether you know Auburn was the better team than Alabama? or It doesn't matter. You've got to settle it on the field. The question is, at what point in time do you do it? Mm-hmm. And you're right. It's been moving back. That's a good thing. But nobody wants it to be so far back that in some sense, well, not nobody, um, the NCAA certainly doesn't want it because, you know, when the Citrus Bowl is being played or when, you know, I don't know, Michigan's playing Wisconsin, let's say, in November, if that, you know, if these games start to not count, they don't want that either. But I yeah. like the way you're thinking about it. At some point, you back it up, and at some point, you stop and say, okay, from this point forward, it's kind of like a two-stage process. You determine who the better teams are using, let's call it, more sophisticated methods, and then once you have, you let it go on the field. Right, right. You know, we see hybrid and we see hybrid systems in some other competitions, and one I always like is the NCAA college golf. They play like three rounds of stroke play, which you might, you know, and analogous to um, – to the analytics is like mm-hmm. it's not quite yet head to head, and then the last whatever it is, two or three rounds are are head to head. So it's this neat neat combination. Before we go, let's let's kind of round out the playoff conversation. We in the Massey Peabody model, we ultimately we model the whole season, but then also we model the selection process, and we bake in a lot of uncertainty. So we're not over overly precise about it, but it allows us to say probability of a team making a playoff, and it's just based at the end on simple rules like an undefeated big an undefeated sec champ is going to be in the playoff that that kind of right thing. and you just kind of go from there undefeated big 10 same thing yeah exactly undefeated power five essentially is going to be in the playoff uh that gives us alabama and ohio state you know based on their power rankings the record they're going to play and some model of the political process at the end we have alabama and ohio state both over 50 percent likely to make the playoffs they're that much better than the competition they're facing. I mean, we have Alabama six points better than the number three team, and Ohio State three points better than the number two team, number three team. So they're just kind of head and shoulders above the rest. After that, it's it's much more uncertain. We have um, Oklahoma uh, as the next most likely. Oklahoma and Washington. If we had to pick a four, mm-hmm. we would pick Alabama, Ohio State, Oklahoma, and Washington. And Washington, of course, was there last year. They had pasted in the first round, but. They're coming out of a Pac-12 that doesn't look super competitive. They've got USC in the south, but up there in the north they don't have a lot. Stanford's going to be down a little bit this year. So Washington looks like a reasonable bet. If they fall, though, USC has got no competition in the Pac-12 south. They're the only other team out there. Stanford could give them a run in the north, but the USC USC has this out to itself. USC plays a little tougher schedule. They have, for example, Texas, so they, they, they have a greater chance of another loss on their, on their, on their record. But What's missing from that, and it's interesting, is the ACC is missing. So I was just about to say, what happened? You know, is you there to, no discussion of a Florida or Florida n- State n- or any of them? That's 
you know, out of the picture? Well, so the the trouble is that they've got more competition over there. So in the ACC, you've both you've got Florida State and Clemson in the same division, and Louisville is in that same division, and so you've got wow. three very strong teams. And so, yeah, somebody could make it out of there, but ex ante, you're you're reducing your likelihood of picking the right team because it could be any of those three, basically. And in fact, the the, the other division has some competition as well: Virginia Tech and Miami out of the out of the coastal. And so you've got a you've got a nice nice conference over there, but it means that they might beat up on each other and decreases the likelihood of somebody making it to the. It's playoff. interesting because what you just brought up brings up two quick metrics. One is you ask what's the probability of making the playoffs. You say, well, wouldn't it be great for three teams to be in the same division playing each other? You could get their true strength. Yeah, but they might beat up on each Absolutely. other, which means any prediction you make. Yep. Um, but from the second point of view, the, wow, that is a ridiculously tough uh, division. It is, it is. And um, I'm, I, you know, I have no prediction um, as to which team may emerge from there, but wh- whoever emerges from that three among the best of those three, Wow, they're yeah. going to be tough to beat in whatever That's right. game they play. That's right. Eric, thank you for calling in, man. I've enjoyed the conversation. Shane Jensen, thanks for being here, talking football with us. Happy birthday again, my man. Deon's, Happy birthday. Thanks, guys. Deion Simpkins, thanks for the soundboard work. Matty Dots back there on the producer board. Seamus and Zach, our committee, bringing us content. Very much appreciate it. And to our guests. That has been another show, another Wharton Moneyball. We do this every week. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.